Thompson. You're both with the Meadow Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University. And this is Fahrenheit 140. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to episode three. How are you today, Carrie? Hey, Robert. I'm good. Happy holidays. Thank you. You too. Um, it's been a, it's been a, I have like just good news. I have Let's lots hear of good it. news. I want to well, hear it. Just, just, just good, good news articles to talk about. And oh, I've been nice. feeling, feeling good about things. Um, and, uh, and I'm going to save that to the end in terms of like why I've been feeling positive <laughs> about the world and good about things. And it's not just my caffeine intake. It's, it's, uh, you know, just kind of new information, I guess. You want to share um, your new identity, uh, the word that you discovered? What? Oh, gosh, I forgot all about that. <laughs> um, um, Apocaloptimist? Apocaloptimist, yes. <laughs> I was thinking, what was that? It's like a snuffleupagus in Sesame Street, but an apocaloptimist, <laughs> which, which yeah, I saw, some, saw on Facebook. Um, some some goofy meme and uh, apocaloptimist was uh, and I don't have it in front of me but but it's like you know you know the world's ending but you you know you feel you feel okay it's like that REM's song right <laughs> yeah yeah that's right I feel fine <laughs> I feel fine it's the end of the world um, all right or it's like you know things are going to hell but you know I feel optimistic about things I think <laughs> that's what I would call an apocaloptimist. Um, <laughs> It's a good, we'll, call, we'll make that our episode brand, our episode name. <laughs> Apocaloptimus. Uh, adapting to climate change. Uh, so, uh, What'd you, you, been, find? You, you, been, you been reading the news? You want me to go first? Yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear what you okay. Let's hear why you're this so is... upbeat. <laughs> <laughs> Bring me to your side. Bring me over. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes, I know. It's, I've, I've, this is, this, this will be hard. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so interesting article and I'm a big fan of a, um, online news service called the conversation and not just because they published one of my articles, but, uh, but it's, um, um, um. <laughs> um, I was actually discovered them during the pandemic and, and they're a little unique in that they, they merge or they bring together academics and, uh, um, reporters, and then they the reporters help the academics you know write up their research or write up a technical topic um, for 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 the people, <laughs> and uh, and so I yeah, appreciate that because it's like you know going through the pandemic. I, I really do want to hear from the experts, and so and so um, there's an article by Philip um, Staley of DePaul University, and it was an article via the Conversation, and the title is is in the fight against climate change, China is doing more than you think, but still not enough. Mm. Um, and I think, uh, you know, and, and certainly I hear it from uh, um, my friends across political spectrums. You know, China is a big emitter of greenhouse gases. They're 30% of the world's emissions. Um, and um, Dr. Staley uh, noted that um, you know, China has had mixed results so far, but thinks they'll do more in the coming years. And he also notes that uh, a common misperception is that China either lacks climate policies or fails to implement them, 
The reality is that China has a robust set of climate and energy policies and a strong track record when it comes to fulfilling its pledges to the international community. Um, but but his his criticism is that they've show a lack of ambition. So they're not they're not they're not putting in stretch goals. Um, but the goals that they do put in, they do tend to um, meet those goals. Um, you know, versus a lot of a lot of folks that uh, are countries that you know make goals and then are doing very little to achieve them. Some other interesting little tidbits he had was like half the world's electric vehicles and ninety eight percent of electric buses are in China. Oh, um, interesting. And it achieved nine of its fifteen quantitative targets in its twenty fifteen climate commitments ahead of schedule. Um, so they're, they're, you know, maybe kind of a aim low and succeed. Um, I guess maybe you could also, I mean, you could argue that on aiming high enough, which, which, uh, um, Dr. Stanley is, is saying that, but I think you could also argue they're trying to, trying to choose goals that they know they can meet. Um, and, uh, and, you know, over the past decade, their use of coal has fallen from about 70% of its power generation to 57%. Um, and a lot of that is, I mean, they're, they're world leaders, quite frankly, in renewables, um, and they're also converting to natural gas, which is kind of a, an evolution towards green energy. Uh, you know, it's you know big reason the United States' emissions have gone way down is is more because of cheap natural gas um but but as we all know that's not enough so so yeah i mean that's that's good helpful hopeful news wouldn't you agree carrie oh i'm i'm very much <laughs> apocalyptic <about> that. <laughs> mine ties in a little bit my first one i'm actually going to do a twofer because i want to you know end it on a happier note so the first one is uh, out of the Washington Post, and I actually like the subtitle better than the title. The subtitle is The Cost of Dithering, and uh, the title is 15% of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions have happened in the last decade. And so I just really pulled a few little factoids here, but this one was pretty jaw-dropping. So since the release of Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, right, we all remember that, the charts. Mm-hmm. The PowerPoint. Yeah, it went know. off the, yes. yeah. Yeah, 2006, right? 40%. Uh, global emissions have increased by 40% since that PowerPoint. That's crazy to me. That's so <laughs> yeah, crazy. That is crazy. And it says no country has contributed to those emissions as much as the United States, which is, I know that's kind of the controversy and then and then the comma though china has added more in recent years and and their their rate of increase is much higher because of their Mm -hmm. where they're starting right but um cumulative global emissions have jumped more than 26 percent with the u.s increasing by about 15 in the last decade so that's that's kind of a downer so i wanted to marry that with this other article so we, I, make, we make such a good team, Carrie. I know. You're, you know. Really, you're really turning me around. <laughs> I blow up the balloon. You let the air out. <laughs> now, I can't believe this. That's not, that's not nice. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> um, but this is a little story out of the UN um, about their own – it's like their, their own workforce – 
Mm-hmm. And what happened to their greenhouse gas emissions during the pandemic? So this is China. No, you the UN. U.S. Oh, UN. The UN, yeah, United Nations. They have, I think, three hundred and fifteen thousand employees, which I was pretty shocked by that. And then uh, fifty-six offices, it looks like. And kind of taking a look at what happened in twenty twenty, they generated twenty-five percent fewer greenhouse gases just because they shifted to more telework and, you know, really focused on um, carbon, carbon offsets. And, you know, we're going to talk more about that in the later Mm -hmm. episode. Um, But I thought it was inspiring. And it also sort of just shines a light that, you know, we can change the way we do business and it can have a real impact. 25% drop in one year is pretty incredible, you know, against the Mm -hmm. backdrop of all of that increase, we really still do have, um, we still have tools that really could, could make an impact. And not only did they change their carbon uh, output, but their water use and basically says, you know, this highlights an opportunity for us to look at how we work and travel and, um, you know, change the kind of emissions that we're having. So, and, and you know, and, and who knows what's going to happen with Omicron? But but setting that aside, as as we've been um, transitioning to, you know, one would hope at some point a post-COVID world. Mm. Um, you know, what, what's been occurring to me is that how do we use this new video technology going going forward and really to the benefit of things so like with our own blue bag which is what we call our monthly kind of brown bag lunchtime presentation um you know and we're we're in a we're a bit off of campus so it's difficult for professors on campus to attend in person mm-hmm. um and my thought is is and you know we've got friends of the meadow center all over the state sure. um and i'm like let's do these virtual. Um, and you know, the attendance is a lot higher. Um, I was, I just participated in the Texas water research network meeting and, uh, it's a similar thing. I'm encouraging them. I'm like, you know, we should have, um, I mean, there's something to be said about getting together in person every once in a while, but an organization that tries to pull in, um, academics and water people from across the state, you're more likely to get more involvement, in a, in a virtual setting. Um, and so, so, um, they're going to, they're going to look at that and, uh, and probably do something like that. So I imagine a lot of the, that decrease in carbon footprint for the United Nations, 315,000 people. I know, right. Jeez. Is this, yeah. is not jet setting around. It's um, kind of right. Right. Exactly. And it is, they do have an obviously international presence. So I'm sure they do travel a lot. Or did. <laughs> <laughs> How's that, Robert? Did that bring you up? Um, yeah, that, yeah, that's, that's good. Pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, good. you know, you do your thing, but you're Oh, good. my God. <laughs> what? <laughs> so unfair. <laughs> um, so, so the um, San Antonio Express News published a commentary Um written by Meredith Scott, who's a uh, sustainable rancher here in Texas. And, mm. and then um, I might have gotten the names wrong because I got Suzanne Scott here, and I don't think they have the same last name. But <laughs> Suzanne Scott, who's the head of uh, Nature Conservancy in Texas, and the title 
of the article is uh, how ranchers fight climate change. And, uh, and if you're listening, if you go back to the podcast, we do provide links to these articles. Unfortunately, this this one with the San Antonio Express News is behind a paywall. Mm. Meredith Ellis. Yeah, I got her name wrong. Um, but uh, um, it was basically how ranchers play a role in um, carbon sequestration and and and, uh, um, and and with the environment. And so it's a discussion of, you know, there's a U.S. Department of Agriculture's Climate Smart Agriculture and Forestry, uh, Forestry Partnership Initiative. Mm-hmm. So helping um, working, you know, lands and those that own them to um, manage them in such a way that that that, that it stores carbon um, in addition to absorbing and filtering water, um, which is you know good for good for the good for the cows, but also good for the plants and, and native wildlife. Um, express concern about <clears throat> how much land Texas is is losing, how much working land is being losing to non agricultural use. Um, I'm sure these numbers come from um, Roel Lopez's work at A&M, but, but between 1997 and 2017, Texas lost about 2.1 million acres of working lands. And, uh, and then there's been a significant um, acceleration in that decrease, which, you know, we see um, you know, if, if you live in an urban part of Texas, um, like we do, you see that that growth going out into the countryside. And so Texas loses 650 acres of working land per day, wow. essentially due to development. And of course, that has um, carbon impacts. Um, and then, uh, and then this this um, little article also reminded me that there's a group called the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. And, and the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance. So there are organizations out there to help you know, ranchers um, think differently about um, how they're doing their business, but then also seek to give the industry credit for what they do do in terms of um, um, you know, hosting what, what is the, really the source water for a lot of urban areas um, and then also maximizing what they can do to store carbon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every acre that's not converted to development is good news (laughs) for us. (laughs) That's awesome. All right. This one, if nothing else gets you in climate change fighting mode, this will. Are you ready? (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) I mean, I was pretty moved by the article we talked about where coffee was endangered by climate change. But That's, that, that, them's our fighting words. Yeah, right. This one's just as touchy for me. Climate change, ready? Mm-hmm. Making Texas allergies worse faster than anywhere else in the United States. Oh my gosh. I know. I know. Texas, why? <laughs> why? This is from beloved Austin weatherman David Yeomans. Um, Yeomans, I'm not sure how he says it. But uh, let me read the bad news to you here. A 2021 study found that Texas is seeing a faster increase in springtime pollen than anywhere else in the country. Tree pollen in the spring had one of the largest increases um, starting about 20 days earlier. So the season lasting at least 20 days longer. 
and an average across the board increase of 21% concentration. I mean, I don't know if I can take it. <laughs> That's just rude. Yeah, get that and here. Just, just, I mean, I love this article because he's really bringing it home to people. He says, also, since 2007, more CO2 in the atmosphere is leading to bigger, more aggressive poison ivy plants. <laughs> this trend is expected to continue unless we curb our emissions. So there you go. There you go. Wow. That isn't that is a change maker right there. Don't you think? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's (laughs) that's amazing. Um, Yeah. One of my friends, he's, he's critical because there's a lot of news articles out there about, um, you know, tying everything to climate change. And, uh, you know, what I tell him is just like, you know, all the bad things that happen in the world aren't because of climate change, but it just kind of seems to make things worse. (laughs) I say like not all, but most. Most. Yeah. 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 Well, see if he can tell you that through his sneezing and crying. (laughs) And itching. (laughs) (laughs) And itching. Yeah. Yeah. Poison ivy. That's just not good. I mean, I mean, I, I give this article five stars for persuasiveness. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, um, so my third article is, uh, um, a, a cool one. This one, this one literally is, is, uh, <laughs> is it's titled cooler pavement coming to San Antonio streets. Ooh, nice. It's by Gregory Pollock of uh, Fox 29 in San Antonio. And, and, um, what it is, you know, so for me, it's like the, uh, no, I'm going to, I'm going to stop because you're going <laughs> to, <laughs> these are the articles that come to me and it's probably because I'm kind of, I'm happy about things. <laughs> so, I don't, what are you doing? I'll, see, I should have stopped. Um, <laughs> so, so the, um, um, this company is testing, um, well, let me step back. I, I was at a, um, um, Texas Water Research Network conference earlier this week. And uh, in fact, those of you that are out there, Texas Water Research Network, it's hosted um, by Jay Banner's research group, the Environmental Science Institute at, at UT. It's mostly directed towards scientists, but but if you're interested in, in science um, or if you're an advocate and geo, you can join it. But one of the presenters there, um, oh, and, and the meeting was a big about a big about equity and particularly water infrastructures. But somebody said that, uh, which was amazing to me, was that if you compare um, temperatures in neighborhoods in Houston from from the poor part of town to a wealthier part of town, the poor part of town is like seventeen degrees warmer. 17 degrees warmer and you know a big part of that is is tree canopy and things like that Um, where if you don't have all those trees you just have these big solid surfaces you get asphalt that's just absorbing a bunch of heat and so so what's going on in san antonio is they're part of a pilot project that's also being done in los angeles and phoenix to uh, put sealer on the on the streets, which is something that is commonly done, like you'll see road construction workers put sealer on top of of asphalt to kind of fix cracks and 
put things into place, but instead of it being black, like it usually is, it's uh, stuff that they were doing. It was like a concrete, light concrete color and, and saying that it can decrease the surface temperature between nine and 12 degrees um, using this stuff. So, so I thought that was kind of a, kind of a cool, simple thing that communities could do to reduce the heat island effect where, you know, the temperatures are higher in, in our urban environments because we do have a lot of, we don't have as many trees and we have a lot of dark surfaces. Um, and if you're interested in, and I'm not too familiar with uh, San Antonio, but, but uh, the Hayes street bridge um, it's on the East side. It looks like they did about a block there and they're collecting data on what it, what it means That's and what cool. it does. I've heard a little bit about this in some cities trying to plant trees in areas where they have heat island issues, mm-hmm. but but areas with a lot of renters um, have trouble with kind of maintaining trees and and then the cost of water and mm-hmm. watering trees is mm-hmm. it's, it's there's um there's some systemic barriers to some of these changes. So it's great they're thinking about it at the municipal level. You know, and it's if uh, and a big part of that is uh, speaking from personal experience is just choosing the right trees. Um, now there is, you know, when you plant new trees, you do need to be watering them. But once they get established, if you're choosing the right trees, then then uh, you don't need to water them anymore. So like yeah. our place, there it's xeriscaped, um, and uh, you know, so we don't we don't water the trees. Now we did water, you know, there's a couple trees we planted. We'd have to water them for about a year, but but uh, since then we haven't watered them, so. Nice. All right. My uh, next article is about climatarianism. Have you heard about this? I have not. I love it. Is this like, is this like eating climate yeah, scientists? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Not eating climate scientists. Oh. No. <laughs> Although, hmm, that's interesting. Um no, it says, uh, this is, um, I, I found, Sarah, once I read this, I went and kind of searched for it. And I guess there have been articles in New York Times and other places this year about this. But um, this one's in a um, Australian publication called Body and Soul and uh, under their nutrition column, Sophie Scott. And she, the subtitle is, are you ready to see a letter C next to the dairy-free, gluten-free, and vegetarian labels on your menus? Mm-hmm. I thought that's that's really interesting. And, and so I just thought I'd share climatarianism is kind of taking off. People are trying to think about the carbon impact of their food. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I wanted to share some of the pointers or sort of the cool. pillars of climatarianism in case you want to start putting a C on your menus. <laughs> So it says carbon labeling may become as common as nutrition labeling. And according to the UN, an estimated 30% of all food produced for human consumption never makes it to the plate. And we throw out about 20% of the food we buy. So some of the principles are, you know, don't waste food. If you can, if it's kind of getting outdated, throw it in the freezer or pickle it or throw it in a stew, try to find ways to use it. Um, and, and for those of you who've kind of looked into that zero waste movement, that there's a there's a cascading kind of theory too. Like if you can't do any of those things, then 
see if there's an animal that can eat it. And then if an animal can't eat it, then see if you can compost it and, you know, try to, try to stay as high as you can on that what, chain. What about black soldier fly, fly larva? I mean, that's what mm. we do if. Somehow this article fails to mention that specifically. <laughs> <laughs> but do tell. What... <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so uh, I have, uh, and I, I don't want to say my wife and I have because she, she pretty much has disowned them. But I've, <laughs> I've got, might be, I don't know, might be 500 um, black soldier fly larvae that I have in a compost out by our garden. What and happens when they become adults? Um, they, uh, you know, they turn into these really cool looking flies. So, so like if, if whoever designed the stealth fighter designed <laughs> a fly, this is what it would look like. Yeah. And they're called black soldier flies because they're born without a mouth and they die, they die within a day. So they, oh, wow. they're pretty much born to party. <laughs> And then they, you know, and then they die. So it's not a fly problem at all. Okay. I mean, it's it's a good day when I see a black soldier fly because it's they're so cool looking, but it's not a common occurrence. And then yeah, so I get these kind of Cheeto sized maggots that uh, break down stuff. Mm. Pretty amazing. They love coffee grounds and watermelon. Those are favorite nice. things. But yeah, you are an optimist when you say it's a pretty good day when I see. <laughs> Black soldier fly. <laughs> it is. It's exciting. It's just like, wow, check it out. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Some other quick pointers if you want to be a climatarian is uh, reduce your meat intake. They're not saying get rid of meat in your diet, but just try to see if you can cut it back and maybe incorporate more plant-based foods and um, eat organic when you can. And not just because it's you know, sort of cool thing to do, but the pesticides and fertilizers actually have a large carbon footprint, which I hadn't thought about. And then trying to scroll, scroll, scroll. I guess that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so it says, cool. Cool. yeah. Um, so just some things that are not that difficult to do. And I guess you could lower your impact. Very so good. That, that was that one. Climatarian. Climatarian. Okay. Well, it's it's good to to hear that it isn't about eating climate scientists. That is comforting. I bet bet there would be a subculture at some point. Um, All right. Well, next up, um, we've got... uh, It's good news. Time for good news. Yes, it is good news. Um, Something something cool that's happening in Texas, and we'll hear from uh, Dr. Sue Havorka. Welcome back, everybody, and we're pleased to have Dr. Susan D. Havorka, Sue. Um, I've worked with Sue a long time. Um, I guess I first met met you, Sue, back in, uh, um, gosh, early 90s. She is a senior research scientist at the Bureau of Economic Geology, which is with the Jackson School of Sciences, which is with the University of Texas at Austin. Um, I did a little oppo research on her and I, I uh, didn't realize this, <laughs> that uh, you have a, a BA in geology from Earlham, is that how you say it? Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana. The, uh, what is it, the Fighting Quakers? That doesn't seem right. It is, yeah. It is. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> that's uh, that's, that's kind of cool. Are you from Indiana originally or? 
No, my no, I'm I'm at a, my family has a farm in Indiana. We're putting it in solar power. So let me say that to establish my cred as a green, <laughs> a green person. That's awesome. Well, after after uh, getting her uh, undergraduate degree in geology from uh, Earlham, she um, got her master's and PhD from uh, University of Texas at Austin. So welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks, Robert. Nice to meet you, Sue. Nice to meet you, Gary. Um, you've been working on some um, really exciting things, and um, you know, on this podcast, we're, we're focused a lot on on water, but but I guess just really anything generally with with climate, and particularly if there's a Texas connection to it. Um, and uh, and I know you've been working. It seems like you've been working for at so least was, a decade. I was working with you in the '90s on on the Edwards Aquifer, which I love. You know, I loved it. The working on the Edwards Aquifer, and and for a little, you remember that little holiday that the Edwards Aquifer uh, research took when they had to reconstitute the Edwards Aquifer Authority. Yes. Yeah. So, and I got and at that point, I got involved in this new thing about uh, climate change. Is it real? Is it not real? And at first, I thought I'd work on. On climate change research, on, on looking at, at the role of climate change in modifying groundwater and, and lakes and the high plains and so forth. But um, I ended up getting involved in um, mitigation, like, okay, climate change, uh, let's not study it, let's stop it. So mm -hmm. uh, so then I've got, I, I lost my Edwards Aquifer career by distraction. I mean, I, <laughs> Edwards Aquifer is still very important and I wish I was working on it. Um, but but we, but this bit about what can we do to to preserve uh, recharge, to preserve lakes, preserve environmental quality in the in the face of of uh, human created climate change is, is uh, uh, needs attention. So that's what I'm working on now. Carrie, it looks like you have a question. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, my we are. Prompt. Yeah, thank you, Robert. That's so subtle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sue, we wanted to we wanted to have you here to talk about CO two sequestration and just help folks understand what it is, you know, why it matters, what's the promise, what are the what are the worries. So maybe just start with what it is. Yeah. So the the idea is that um, we're um, perturbing the climate by. Um, putting all this CO2 that used to be stored as fossil fuel, coal, oil, gas, in the subsurface. Uh, we're bringing it up to the surface, um, extracting energy from it to do all our stuff, and letting the, uh, the CO2 um, from the results inevitably from combustion of fossil, we're letting it go loose in the atmosphere. And um, that's the, one of the big, that with, with agricultural change, that's the big driver of, of forcing uh, forced climate change. So a lot of people have talked about, well, we should just stop that. But if, if you think about your own life, you think about what we're doing now, we're getting, we're getting, um, you know, it's a nice breezy day. Maybe we're getting 20, 30% of our energy from wind and the rest of it. Here in Austin, we're getting it from, from uh, El, the gas-fired city of Austin utilities. We might be getting it from LCRA. You know, we're using, and it's a night, if the wind's not blowing very hard, we'll be using more. Um, and and I, you know, I have solar on my house, but it, it we can go out and look at the lights. So the, so this bit about handling fossil fuel is important. Um, uh, and it's also so, so what we do is instead of releasing the the stack gas, I don't we call it a smokestack a stack in 
I'm short. Okay. Um, yes. That's very snappy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so the problem is releasing to the atmosphere. We don't do that with wastewater anymore. You know, since the Safe Drinking Water Act of, of, the, of the 60s and 70s, we, we used to be you could dump water right out the back door. I could see pictures of Niagara Falls of plants dumping their wastewater right over the edge. Wow. We don't do that anymore. And it improved water quality hugely. So one of the things we need to do to improve the air quality with respect to uh, climate uh, global warming um, issues is, is uh, um, stop releasing uh, the CO2 out of stacks. So what's a, the choice is if you have CO2 coming out of your stack and you want and you need to stop releasing it, um, you can uh, capture it and um, uh, compress it and send it off to a safe, approved, permitted place and re-inject it back underground, thereby closing the loop. So we say, I have a T-shirt that says "Put it back," which I, by which I mean part of it. It's like a kindergarten rule. Once you've got it out, you should put it back. There's an if statement in there. If you don't find it necessary in your life somehow to take any carbon out, you don't have to put it back. But if in your life you are removing carbon from storage, you need to put it back in order to get to a sustainable, um, in a carbon neutral world, so that uh, we can attain uh, safe climate. Um, scenarios in the future for not for us because we're talking about the future but, but well, how, how do you put it back what what does that so, look like so, we, so uh, there's the um the what goes up the stack is no longer smoke it's cleaned up to meet air quality um but the co2 is allowed to go through that processing so you add one more gizmo that uh, traps the co2 um you don't want to put the stack gas straight down because it's mostly nitrogen um, and you don't want to compress the nitrogen, so you pull out the CO2. Um, you, it's uh, more convenient to ship it at, um, in condensed form because you don't want to carry around all that bulk. So you, sh you ship it, usually you stick the stick in a pipeline, although you can put it in a container and put it on a train or a boat or whatever suits you. Um, and then uh, you inject it into the deep subsurface um, below and isolate it from fresh water so that in a situation where it will be permanently retained and that's in the that's in the law of the safe drinking water act 1974 you have to it has to be below isolated and that's where the word sequestered comes from you have to show before you can even contemplate doing this you have to show that it's it's down there to stay how deep how deep is deep um we, we want it uh it needs to go deep enough so that it can't come back up and that, of course, being geologists, it all depends on what's going on. But um, in general, it's a, in, uh, uh, 800 meters, uh, you know, nearly a mile. Um, needs to, so it's got to it's be deep enough um, to be isolated from freshwater. So um, freshwater can be quite shallow, but many places it goes um, uh, in, in the Gulf Coast. We do a lot of work. It, it goes down several thousand feet. So you have to go below that, and you have to um, then have something in between so there's isolation. Now, we're, we're in good shape because the subsurface is layered. So you get you, you put it below enough layers, and you can, it, you can pretty well demonstrate to everyone's confidence that it's not coming back up. Hey, Sue, I'm having a hard time, like, picturing this. So is it – are you, like – 
big truck of gas and you're just i mean i don't understand how does it get in there how do you capture it and how do you inject it like what does it look like so um when when the capture facility is is usually a big thing um there's a bunch of different ways to capture it um let's talk about the one that's that i've seen operating in in texas the the one at the wa parish plant south of houston and it's a it's a big it's a big tower looks like a small refinery it grabs the co2 then it compresses it. Uh, compressors are, are, are big piston-driven things. They have usually come in a row, so they compress and compress and compress in stages. Then they put it in a pipeline. Pipelines are, are usually uh, inches in diameter, six, 9 inches, 18 inches in diameter. They can be above ground, but they're often buried, and they're sometimes buried, so they go, um, they even don't touch the surface. They're, they're um, tunneled under rivers or under under. Uh, sensitive areas like habitat um, then you get it to the place the place and that's what we do I do is um, our team at UT helps to define what this place is it's um, actually very well established what kind of a place you need there's sedimentary rocks that we want those layers that come with sedimentary rocks so they, they are layers that have high permeability and low permeability um, the the connection from the between the pipe and the well is very simple. Most people have seen a wellhead. Uh, um, that's what it looks like. That's all it is. Pipeline comes up, goes into the wellhead. There's not much sticking up at the surface. It looks like a parking lot with a with a couple of heavy pipes standing in the middle. It's very unimpressive. <laughs> so is it like a underground bottle of champagne at that point where you, know, you got to keep the cork in, otherwise it all spews back? Or does that does it kind of go into the formation and dissolve into the yeah. water and whatever? Yeah, this is a hard thing for, for people to imagine because um, that, that people think about rocks as being solid that there's no space. But those of you who work in groundwater, many of your listeners are groundwater people, know that fluid flows through the spaces in the rock. And the spaces that we're talking about are, for the most part, uh, the spaces between the sand grains. Mm -hmm. So so the conceptual model you have for groundwater flow, where fluids are moving in between um, the, the sand grains, um, if, if anyone who needs to think about fluids moving through rock um, the, the flow processes are, you can imagine yourself watering a, a, a plant in a pot, right? And what happens to that water? It goes in. Where does it go? It doesn't, have, it doesn't go in a cave. It goes into the spaces between the, between the grains in the plant pot. Now, if you put in too much, it'll, it'll start spilling out the top. If you put in too fast or, or too much, it'll spill out. Same with the CO2 that we put underground. So... The assessment is, in principle, almost as simple as that. How fast can we put it in and not have it spill out? How much can we put it in and not have it come out the other end? Um, so for that inf information, we need to know quite a lot about the zone we're putting the, the CO2 into. Um, it's already full of water, so we can test the behavior of the water using the same ways we test the water uh, well to find out how much, it can how much water it can produce for groundwater, um, we use the same basic hydrologic principles to, to assess how how the how the rate at which the CO two can be put in and the and uh, how how far it will migrate before it begins to uh, spill out of the uh, the area we want to keep it in. So if it so if it spills out and percolates up into an aquifer, is that 
Does that then like become free Topo Chico for everybody? <laughs> so. we, we, well, we, we have to, you know, it's, it's hard to describe something because people, people alternately get too casual, like Topo Chico, or, or it's <laughs> magnus, like, okay, but this is like dihydrogen oxide, right? Or this is C, CO2 going into dihydrogen oxide. It's pretty dangerous, right? So, <laughs> um, so mm. CO2, we need to, we need to get our, our level of concern correct. Um, uh, we don't have to retain the CO2 um, uh, for for uh, millions and billions of years. You know, it's okay if the Earth system acts, but we do want to retain it very effectively for for thousands of years, so we get the climate value. So, and uh, the the if it if it so it means that ordinary practical geoscience type experience is quite adequate for the purpose. Um, the, the way that we work with groundwater, for example, will will substantiate will let us work with the deep subsurface. Um, that we need to show that it will be retained in isolation over over thousand years effectively, um, but it doesn't have to be absolutely perfect. Um, it has to be good enough to keep it retained. Uh, the law says the Safe Drinking Water Act and the the rules under that can can include no migration. But they, I think they often mean no, no realistic migration. Yeah, a thousand years is like equal to no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not gonna. In a thousand years, is not all gonna come out. It's like if you. It might be that. It might. It might be that if it, if 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 it if it migrated, um, the CO two migrated in a way that you didn't like it. You might get, be able to detect it someplace you didn't want it. Um, it's if you. It's not very dramatic. For example, if you go sample the bubbles that are coming up at at um, Edward Springs, they're, they're mostly CO two, mm-hmm. and they're, uh, that's it's a it's not it's not particularly um, it's not a particularly big problem. Um, it it we need to keep it uh, we need to keep it proportional. What about earthquakes? You know, with all the the water that gets injected for fracking, and it's, it's uh, um, uh, allegedly, some would say allegedly, but I would say it has um, caused earthquakes. Oh yeah, we know for sure. It's, I mean, um, so so is there? A, um, is that something we have to watch out for? Or oh yeah. Inject a bunch of gas in. Yeah. Well, so welcome to Earth. <laughs> this, this, take, planet, take me to your leader. Our, our, <laughs> our, our planet does have energy in the system that expresses itself as seismicity mm-hmm. throughout, and while we, when we, we, but we need to not accelerate that normal seismicity uh, or either in magnitude or in frequency in an unacceptable way, which is usually referred to as induced seismicity. So the process of uh, disposing of water has um, uh, caused earthquakes to increase in in frequency and and potentially magnitude. Um, We can see that very clearly in the data. So there's no quibble about that. And CO2, can do the same thing. Important thing to notice is that that um, this this uh, induced seismicity at measurable and or threatening levels doesn't occur everywhere. For example, it's mo- in fact it doesn't occur most everywhere. It most mm-hmm. places you can inject to your heart's content, and uh, there's not enough there's not enough energy in the Earth system to release. So uh, so you don't get any. Uh, detectable 
measurable seismicity. Um, now you always get some seismicity is is, is acoustic energy, right, propagating through the Earth system. So when you put the CO two down, you always if you put on headphones, <laughs> and you listen to what's down, you know, just put a, a microphone, which is a, a receiver to listen to it. You'll always hear something. Um, but when you put these in magnitude of minus, you know, minus four or something, it sounds a little bit like Rice Krispies, same process. And <laughs> 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 mm. Rice Krispies, you're changing the pore pressure of the, of the wet, you know, as you put milk on that, you're changing the pore pressure of the gas and trapped in the Rice Krispies and, and it, and it will will break and you'll hear this noise. So you'll always hear some noise. So people can't hold you to no seismicity because that's not a thing we can do on Earth. Um, but what we want to do is avoid uh, as consequential um, seismicity. And most places don't get, you can inject, inject vigorously and you have to not exceed the, the strength of the rocks because that will uh, cause uh, more than snap, crackle, pop. We'll start making <laughs> little blooms. You don't want that, um, mm-hmm. but for many reasons. But it's it's not allowed, and it's courtesy all the experience from fracking. We know quite easily how to measure what's t- how much is too much. It's a required by the Safe Drinking Water Act that you measure how much is too much and stop short of that, um, and report frequently that you're complying with that rule. So it's not not hard to measure. Uh, the place that people get in trouble is if they didn't know how much energy was too much energy, and you have to so you have to go test and find out um, what the state of stress is and whether there's are features that could be energized that would result in um, in uh, uh, consequential seismicity, making usually being something that that people standing on the surface can detect. I mean, we're not worried about rice crystals; mm. we're worried about stuff that people that are going to bother people. Or harm people or harm things. So, um, so it's for an example of this case that we had. A, we're doing a project in Mississippi, and uh, a group in Japan who was working on um, doing CCS in Japan um, asked if they could test their technology with it in collaboration with a U.S. program that was a little further ahead. So, we, so they were going to work in California, which would have been great. They would had some good times in California, I think. But the, the project in California got postponed. So they asked us if they could work with us in Mississippi. And we said, sure, we'd be delighted. Um, and, and Sue, what is CCS? Oh, sorry. We we're doing injecting CO2. We're, so we're injecting a million tons a year um, uh, and monitoring it. with trying to, we, have a, we have a project um, with, with uh, every, all, of our, all of our friends. You know, it's like... All the national labs and USGS and okay. and uh, groups from abroad, including this group from Japan, who want to measure seismicity. So we raise the pressure. It's the injection in this location in Mississippi is at, at three kilometers depth, and um, it's got several faults in the injection zone. So we're quite optimistic that something interesting will happen. I'm not hazardous, but interesting technically. Um, <laughs> and and uh, and they and we're going to raise the pressure quite a lot. A thousand psi above initial pressure above, um, so that's good. Um, so they put out an array of six six nice Japanese designed uh, uh, seismometers and at a uh, hundred meter depth well that isolates them nicely from the surface. And they worked beautifully. They could call us from Japan and say, um, "I see we have." They'd say lightning. We'd say thunder. You mean? <laughs> so they could detect. They could detect noise at the surface. Wow. They could. 
so they, and they can detect uh, global earthquakes. And you know what they got out of that site? Nothing. Nothing. Just right. nothing. Uh, that it didn't energize anything to make noise detectable noise with a quite a good array. Um, so, and that's that's fairly widespread. That's much more common than the other. It doesn't make the news, but but it, you have to tell the sheep, the wolf from the sheep in seismicity. So most of them are most of them are sheep, but some of them are wolves. Be sure to tell the difference. <laughs> so it sounds like you're working in a lot of locations. Is is Texas a special place for sequestration? Or Texas is kind of a special problem. Um, <laughs> um, Ooh, tell us more. <laughs> if Texas was a country, it would be, I think, number seven on the planet for carbon emissions. It's it's a top ranker, um, a high carbon emission density because of the because of the amount of processing of fossil fuel, a fairly large population. Um, um, so Texas has a need. Um, and, um, Texas also has the opportunity because the subsurface of Texas, especially in the Gulf Coast, but also in the Permian Basin, um, have the potential to accept very large volumes of CO2 and with, with quite high assurance that the storage will be permanent. Um, so it's a, it's a, need, a need and an opportunity that are coincident. That's not everyone has that. So I was just curious, like, who are your customers? <laughs> Who's doing this, and how, like, how common is it as a practice? So um, the the um, are the so that the old processes um, uh, things have been injected for hundred for sorry from well almost hundred years wastewater from from oil and gas. So this is a mature technology. Um, fluids of various kinds have been injected uh, since before the Safe Drinking Water Act. So all kinds of hazardous fluids have been injected and monitored. Most people don't know that because most of the well, they're so-called class one wells managed by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency have been operating for 50 years and nobody knows because they mostly operate without a fuss. Um, there's also been CO2 injected in very large volumes into oil fields to improve the recovery, and that's those are that's a very analogous handling procedure. It gives us a gives us a clue. And out of about a hundred of them, there's been one that had uh, measurable seismicity. They're still operating it, though. They didn't. It was this Cogdell field in West Texas. Okay, so that's the old story. And the new story is anybody who needs to wants to manage their carbon, which has gotten to be almost everybody, their phone rings off the wall, we're talking to everybody about everything. Um, previously, our work was funded mostly, almost entirely by the federal government, by the U.S. Department of Energy out of the National Energy Technology Lab, who were charged with by Congress to find options. And we work with our counterparts globally and, and across the U.S. You know, we're, we're teammates doing this all over the place. Um, but recently, um, the commercialization has been picking up and lots of lots and lots of companies um, have been making announcements and that they're going to um, manage their carbon in the future and a goodly number of them have uh, carbon capture and storage um, CCS as, as part of their portfolio and they need to know how to do it so I've had some great conversations with people who call and say first of all they establish their cred that they are very competent well financed groups that have a significant carbon budget. We're a Fortune 500 company. We know what we're doing. And then they say, so do we have like 
a subsurface. <laughs> Lots of groups are en- who've never never thought about what they could do underground or are entering in. So it's a lot of fun um, working with them. Um, we at UT don't usually work in a consulting capacity. We often pass that on to people who are actual consultants. Um, but we collaborate with people who are, are um, industries um, uh, who are have key questions. Uh, we get some funding, industrial funding from a diverse group that um, includes oil companies, but also uh, electric utilities and, and uh, um, consultancies who want to see how they can make a business out of this. So, and we and they, we try to answer very technically some of the same questions that you've been asking and we've been chatting about. And we've been uh, seeing a number of articles of uh, um, CO2 sequestration um, in, in, in you were talking about stat gas. So I don't know what they call this other air gas, just harvesting from the general atmosphere yeah. and injecting. And there's like apparently a company and a company trying to do that out in, in West Texas. There's that uh, plant up in, in Iceland that yeah. is uh, um, harvesting from the air and then injecting into some basalts and then, and then actually like fixing the carbon dioxide through, um, precipitation of of uh, carbonates yeah. into the although it seems like that could have porosity problems but what, what are your thoughts on that are you involved in any of that kind of yeah yeah of course the, the, so the two so the, there's been a lot of discussion since the um the last um the um the last un meetings about uh climate change saying we probably are going to have an overshoot, put more CO2, put dangerous levels of CO2 in the atmosphere before we're done, before we get our act together. So what are we going to do about it? Um, the need to draw it down has been discussed a lot. So these are um, uh, carbon negative processes. How could, once the CO2 has escaped, you've let it up your stack, you've let it loose from agricultural lands or uh, um, from other things. Um, it's, it's in the air. Well, how are you going to get it back? Um, so the, uh, there's a lot of processes that do it naturally, like um, the oceans do it and turn it into um, um, carbonate. They turn it into, put it back mm-hmm. in organics. They turn it, um, or plants trap it in soils, uh, minerals, mineral weathering. But you can accelerate those things. So one of the proposed ways, all those things are proposed to accelerate, and they're, you know, we don't do them here, uh, but but we work with lots of people who are working on them. The two ones, the two um, ne- carbon negative technologies that need to um, produce enough CO2 that it needs to be stored are direct air capture, which is what you were talking about, Robert. Also, bioenergy. Um, if you, you if you cap- capture the CO2 using uh, biologic methods and then combust that those biofuels, you need to in order to keep them out of the atmosphere. You can you can um, capture them and store them. So direct air capture works just like capture from a stack, except it has to be tuned up to capture from the very dilute um, content of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It takes a fair amount of energy. So you have to be careful. It's not the solution. The, the clever person's solution is, is you know, one of these basic things about um, telling your kid to dump the trash correctly in the trash can, not leave it around the house. So... <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, the, the putting it in the air is leaving it around where it takes a lot more energy to get it back. So the smart thing to do is to do 
the capture from the point sources mm-hmm. it's already collected and concentrated and get those out of the atmosphere one but then the remainder can be sucked out of the atmosphere and the two things may need to work together to some extent um, so it's so the direct air capture and um, mineral trapping are certainly part of the portfolio we need them times and places but they're not the the thing the only thing to do sometimes people think well that's my favorite let's just do that one and this, mm-hmm. this is a matter my kids do this too they come home they leave things all over the house and say no no <laughs> put them away first you put them away and we're not picking them up later <laughs> so so don't so don't write off the it's not as elegant or as flashy but it's necessary to do first is deal with all the point sources which by the way includes things like cement um mm-hmm. or steel or plastics not just um not just the things you're thinking about that have uh, coal or oil going straight into them, but these things, other things that handle large amounts of carbon, um, are and have no choice but to handle the carbon. I want to tell you one other thing about why CO two stays permanently, um, mm-hmm. and this is a hydrologist thing. I, I can't look at Robert and say this with a straight face, you know, <laughs> but I'll tell everyone else that 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 once something goes into the microscopic pores, it's really hard to get it back out. We and it, we and it's, it relies on a kind of physics that that we all know about, but we didn't learn about it in school, which is trapping us by capillary forces. This is especially true when there are two phases trying to share one little tiny space. They get in each other's way. They can't get out. So um, everyone's had this experience. It's why when you, you know, if you should spill something like grease on your shirt, you can't shake it out you can't wipe it out it's stuck in those little spaces right mm-hmm. the only way to get it out is to dissolve it out you have to send it to the dry cleaner or use hot soapy water to dissolve it uh, it's very hard to get something out of tiny spaces so when the co2 goes in it doesn't run out you don't you're not you're putting it in the flower pot the water that goes around the roots of the flower you can carry that flower pot all around the house the water doesn't come out it's stuck inside right it's stuck in the pore spaces. So that fact that it goes down and gets stuck in those pore spaces is a really important thing to have in your mind that why it, why we can have confidence that this process will, will work. So it's physics. And just imagine, uh, the other thing I think about is if you're, if you're putting mayonnaise on bread and you have seven pieces of bread and you start too generously, and the, bread, the mayonnaise goes into those spaces on the bread, right? Mm-hmm. And you get to the seventh one, there's not enough. And you think, well, I'll just smear some off the first. No, try it at home. <laughs> it's very hard to get that seventh sandwich enough mayonnaise. <laughs> and that's, a, that's because the little holes in the bread are pores. That's a pretty good way to think about what the rocks would look like, is the holes in the bread are down there. In the, and the, the, the uh, two phases, water and CO2, are sharing that space. And once in, they won't come back out. Well, sounds like uh, there's there's a promising future for um, CO2 sequestration. It's exciting that uh, we're seeing activity in Texas, and uh, and and although the Edwards Aquifer misses you, Dr. Havorka, you know you're you're, you're clearly doing noble work here to uh, uh, help help us transition to to more of a carbon neutral world. And so appreciate you 
joining us today and uh, sharing sharing your your knowledge. And if anybody out there is looking to sequester some CO two, now you know who to call. Put it back. Put it back. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Carrie, for having have this conversation because people do need to know. If if you have carbon you're emitting to the atmosphere, you should think about putting it back. Call your call whoever you're getting your stuff from and tell them did they decarbonize your electricity, your your products and things. Um, ask them. Can we give them can we give them your number? (laughs) Put it back. Put it back. Hashtag. (laughs) I think you're starting a movement right here, right now, Sue. Fantastic. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you. Hey, Robert, I don't know about you. I learned so much from Sue. I know you've yeah, known her was, a long time. But that was awesome. Yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was so cool. Um, you know, the really, really fascinating work and, uh, and I may never think of the earth the same again, you know, just I'm always going to picture a bowl of rice Krispies kind of <laughs> crackling. Um, yeah, that was really neat. And, and hopeful. Yep, is hopeful. You know, and it seems like Texas is just, uh, we've got the, the talent and the geology and the, you know, the expertise with all these deep holes. Um, that would be, that would be really good. I, you know, we, we had a little bit of a discussion afterwards um, about whether um, fracked fields would be a good place to put CO2 in. And, and what, what did Sue say? She said no. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I, you know, I asked her that question. I was just curious, and um, she said that the the big repositories from kind of the old days when we had gushers, um, Texas had a lot of big uh, repositories of, of of gas and oil. Those big repositories are actually ideal. Fracked areas are more uh, difficult to, as you might imagine, to access and understand. Yeah, and, and it's uh, and I hadn't really. I mean, it was a great question that you asked, but I hadn't really thought about that because, but but thinking about it kind of makes sense because you're you're fracking formations that tend to be pretty tight to right. begin with, and the fracking kind of helps loosen things up and pull in. So I think it's a lot harder. It would be a lot harder to push um, gas into the porous mm-hmm. media than than a um, what's called a conventional play or conventional field where it's like a big sandstone, big broad sandstone that you didn't need to frack to get the oil out. There's been a huge amount of production, which means there's also a huge amount of, uh, um, it can take a huge amount of pressure to and kind of yeah. putting stuff back in. So it's interesting too. I know we've mentioned this a couple of times since we started the podcast, but this overlay of kind of the center of oil and gas here in Texas and then the center of opportunity that kind of comes along with that is kind of an ironic uh, partnership, but um, mm-hmm. but hopefully that means some of those players will turn their expertise to questions like these too. Yep, yep, I agree. So uh, so now it's time for our um, probably need some new theme music, right? Our oh, our, that'd be our, good. our positive items. Each of us have a positive <laughs> item. Um, do. We, you want me to go first? It seems like you want to. That'd be okay. great. Well, just... <laughs> yeah. Sure, do it. Do it. Um, so, so, so it's not a news item. Um, it's more of a kind of 
kind of realization with a number of things going on. So we had the uh, the big meeting recently where the countries were getting together to kind of mm-hmm. talk about how they're doing on the Paris Agreement and different things. Um, I've also been involved in some discussions with um, City of Austin. Um, I serve on a, um, I guess, a citizen group that kind of advises Austin Water on its water plan, which considers climate change. And so I've I've been on a subcommittee, kind of working with city staff as well as the climate scientists they hired um, from UT and some others. And we're talking about um, what the plan for going forward. And and I've been advocating, I don't know how this is going to go because there's we're still having discussions, but I've been advocating, I'm like, what is the most likely scenario going forward? And shouldn't shouldn't that be what we plan for? And so um, you know, I, I feel like I don't know where you feel, Carrie, but I feel like, you know the world is not going to hit 1.5. We're going to, we're going to, by that, I mean, we're going to exceed 1.5. I don't, I don't, I think we're going to miss it. Um, It just seems like uh, there's been some studies that show it's a less than a 5% chance um, that, that will make it. But then the question is, is that, well, how, how bad is it going to get? Um, And, you know, it, 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 you look at some of those lines that they put out and projections and, you know, some of them look awful but but looking at the um, expert assessments of promises that have been made so far, as, as well as risking, you know, are countries really going to do this or not? Which, of course, you can have, there's interpretations there, and you can have agree and disagree, and yada, yada, yada. Um, but it looks like, you know, we, we've kind of reached the point where, um, you know, we'll be under 2.5 degrees C. Um, that 1.5 is a 1.5 degree C, and you can roughly multiply those by two to get to Fahrenheit. Um, and that's and we'll be under 2.5 with the current likely implementation of promises. Um, and so, or I'm, I'm sorry, we're probably around 2 C, two two degrees Celsius with the current implementation of promises. And so that makes me feel optimistic. Um, I, you know, I'm not I'm not personally tied to. You know, in, in my mind, the world does not end at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, is is uh, you know, if it goes to 1.6, we're not going to be running around the streets on fire. Um, it's not good because <laughs> you know because the more warming there is, the more consequences there are going to be, and and they're not linear. Um, they compound, and then we're also getting, you know, more and more into a, a temperature space that we haven't been in before, and the, you know, the models aren't perfect, and so, you know, and, and there's been a lot of data that suggests the models have been more conservative than what's really been happening. Um, but it, it, when I look at the numbers and look at the projections, and having faith in humanity that that we'll we'll continue to do better with time. That the, you know our promises and our implementation is going to get better with time. That uh, you know I'm I'm hoping maybe we are we're somewhere between 1.5 and two, uh, and maybe closer to 1.5 than two going forward. So, so that's that's my positive positive note of uh, kind of looking at looking at data over the last few weeks and projections and you know, what different experts are saying about it. Um, that's great. 
Well, that's comforting. Okay. You didn't laugh too much when I said well, that. Well, it's not <laughs> that funny. It's not like, ha-ha funny. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that, yeah, that's, I'm glad to hear it. I do trust your modeling skills, so that gives me some comfort. Well, it's not, it's me looking at someone else's model, so it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not, I'm not modeling it, but, but like a lot of the, like the first water plan that Austin did, it, it, it used the, um, I, I hesitate to call it the worst case scenario, but it used the worst projection and almost everybody doesn't think that's going to happen, which that is, that's good news. Well, that is good news. <laughs> so what good, what good news do you have, Carrie? <laughs> Well, I don't, though I'm not enjoying this whole just juxtaposition of you being the optimist and me the pessimist. <laughs> that's not how I, okay, how I okay. look at things. I won't but, bring it up again. I won't bring it up again. <laughs> but I did tell Robert with the apocaloptimist that I could maybe be an apocaloptimist. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, um, you know, I don't think things are going to end all that well. But in the meantime... Let's give each other presents and have a good time. So this article I found is all about holiday gift giving at the end of the world. Oh. And <laughs> at the end of the world? Not really. Okay. It just says, you know, gifts that might actually fly, uh, fight climate change. And it's a really good matchup with our guest today because the first suggestion is that there is a company called Climeworks where you can pay about $96 and um, you can actually buy someone the uh, gift certificate, basically, to, to put it back, like Sue said, put it back. Mm-hmm. So put it back. 96 bucks, and they put about 85 kilograms of CO2 back into the earth. So that's the first idea for gifts. And, um, you know, they're just talking about climate, uh, I'm sorry, carbon capture and the storage technology that we just learned about being really uh, crucial, even though it's a small part of the fight against climate change, it's a really crucial part. So consider that as a gift idea. And then I'll run through, I realize I do a lot of these lists, but I find these so informative. So uh, donate to climate change organizations, uh, maybe give someone a transportation option that's a little greener. So give them a $20 gift card for public transit, uh, maybe a used bike or an Amtrak gift card. Yeah, um, they talk about maybe focusing on more efficient electricity. And I don't know, for those of y'all listening, maybe uh, you're like me, where maybe the rest of your family is not as interested in these topics. And um, so, you know, gift giving season is a good time to, to help folks make the change, maybe to more energy efficient light bulbs or maybe solar charger for their devices. Just trying to think about how you can help folks make that shift. And um, they mentioned to uh, low flow shower heads or a smart thermostat. And then for foodies, kind of going back to my last article, maybe give a vegetarian cookbook or, you know, something that makes it more interesting or fun to switch uh, over to a little bit more plant-based eating. Is, is there a climatarian fo- cookbook yet? Well, maybe we should write one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then their final tip was, Maybe give something that's been gently used or recycled in some way, you know. So I hope I hope that everyone has a good holiday and there is a nice way to think about 
kind of how we can coexist with the reality of the shift that's happening and um, make better choices. Yeah, and, and the thing, uh, I still honestly believe that, you know, we can still enjoy kind of the lifestyles we have, but but just, yeah, just thinking about um, how how it could be done better. Yeah. You know, where it has a, a lower, if not non-existent, um, carbon footprint. Yeah. Well, good. That's well, uh, that's kind of festive. Yeah, Andy. yeah. Yeah, very good. See, <laughs> so it's a good thing I went first. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's to a new year, hopefully with less carbon and less COVID. Yes. And more good news. More good news. And remember, put it back. Put it back. Till next time. Bye, y'all. Robert Mays. I'm Carrie Thompson. (laughs) And thanks to the Meadows Foundation for their support.